me ask you a question. How many of you have seen the newlywed game on TV in its original form? Let me just see a show of hands. That's, I am shocked. I love that. Man, we're older than I thought we were. Now, for those of you who have never seen the newlywed game, maybe you've never even heard of the newlywed game, it came on the air. It is an icon in the pantheon of TV game shows. came on the air in 1966, 66, the year I was born. And it was on the air in one form or another until 2013. That is 47 years of the newlywed game. And just like we just saw here, what typically happened was you would have four couples that would answer questions that their spouse had already answered to see how well they knew each other. And all of the couples had been married two years or less. You, you may remember the original host of the, the newlywed game, Bob Eubanks. Bob Eubanks. That's a great game show host name, isn't it? He had the game show host hair. He had it going on. But the newlywed game was a smash success, I think for a lot of different reasons. But, but number one, I think it was one of those games that no matter who you were, no matter what your marital status was, you could play along at home. If you were married, then you, you could probably find at least one of the couples that you did better than. There was be like, man, that guy's a doofus. And you feel better about yourself and your own marriage if you're not married then you could sit back and kind of answer the questions and see how they did, and you could always go, that will never be me. And so there was this mass appeal of the newlywed game that kept it on the air for 47 years. That's a staggering number when you think about how long a show can last. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the newlywed game is the perfect place for us to begin this series called Marriage Material. Because most of the time when we think of marriage material, when we use that terminology, we're asking the question, is he marriage material? Or is, is she marriage material? Meaning, is that person somebody that you can see yourself spending the rest of your life with? And the question, of course, depends on what you consider marriage material. How do you decide who is or who is not marriage material? I want to just ask you a quick scientific polling question. How many of you who are married right now dated someone before your spouse that you thought you might marry? Can I just see a show of hands? It's okay. If you, if you haven't had this conversation with your spouse, it's, it's all right. Because still, you chose the one that you're with. That's, that's cool. Now, how many of us who are in that category think back to the person that you thought you might marry before you married your spouse and kind of go, <laughs> I can't even, uh, anybody else in the room? Okay, I'm just curious. It's a staggering responsibility when you think about picking a spouse, when you think about marriage material. But this series is not just for the married folks in the house. As a matter of fact, I want you to know that the heart and the prayer behind this series is actually more for those of us who are not married, who are right now single. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're a single adult, or maybe you're divorced and you think never again. The reality is you are the primary audience for this series. 
Now, part of the fun of this is that all of us, say all of us, all of us have a stake in God's marital narrative. Maybe you're married right now and things are great. It's just, it's all good in the neighborhood. You're like the Morgans up here. It's just like, you man, you're just firing off answers, clicking. It's great. That's awesome. This series is for you. Maybe, maybe you're a single and you, and you think at some point in the future, you maybe could be married. Maybe you're married and, and right now it's not all good in the neighborhood. Maybe, maybe you're just kind of like, going along to get along and it's just kind of settled in or, or maybe maybe you're really and truly struggling in your marriage. Maybe like this is, this is crisis mode for you. I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know that every single one of us has a role to play in this marital narrative that God has given us, that, that there is something here for every single one of us. We all have a role to play. Because the fact of the matter is that marriage and what we do with marriage, how we look at marriage, how we live it out, I would suggest to you, is the single greatest determinant of what happens in this world. Let, let me just show you what I'm talking about. The world that we live in is comprised of communities, right? Community may be your neighborhood. It may be where you work. It may be your school. It could be your town or your city, even states and nations are comprised of communities. And, and communities, as communities go, so go the family. Families are the irreducible building block of every single community that there is. And how families create children, raise children, train children is the single greatest determinant of how much those communities will continue to flourish and to thrive. And the single greatest contributor to the health and welfare of children is marriage. It is marriage, it is marriage, it is marriage. Now, let me quickly rush to say this. There are a lot of children who flourish and thrive out of divorced homes, who flourish and thrive out of single parent environments. I happen to be the product of a single parent environment, and I'm at least relatively functioning as an adult. I'm, I'm kind of a product of one, but here's the reality. My mom and my brothers and me, my brothers and I, we were surrounded by a community that showed us, that modeled for us what healthy, God-honoring marriage looked like so that we believed it was still a possibility. Even my mom, even my mom, after my dad left, my mom still believed in the marriage narrative that God gives in Scripture. And she, she believed in that, and she passed that belief on to my brothers and me. My brothers and I are, are still married, all three of us, happily married, with kids that are growing up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So it's absolutely possible. But, everybody say but. But, but we have to to be deliberate. We have to be intentional about it. And if we're going to play not just the newlywed game, but we're going to play the truly wed game, then we have to understand what it means to be truly wed. What does it mean to be actually married in God's economy? In Ephesians chapter 5, God gives us his essay on marriage. He kind of explains 
the philosophy and the practice of marriage, working through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what the Bible says. In verse 21, it says, Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He will move out and begin to buy his own food and be united to his wife. And the two become, the Bible says, the two become one flesh. So, so to be truly wed in this God narrative of marriage, to be truly wed means one man, one woman, one life. In his creative genius, at the pinnacle of his creative powers, God created humanity. And he created man. And he placed him in the garden to work and to steward God's creative genius. But when God saw man alone, he said, this is not good. He knew that man by himself could not bear accurately the image of God he was created to bear. And so in his creative genius and in his grace, God gave man woman. He, he fashioned a woman. He, he fabricated a woman. And the, and the Bible says that when Adam met Eve, when man met woman, he broke into song. He, he, he wrote a poem for it. He was a poet. He said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman that was taken out of me. This is my my helper suitable in, in the original Hebrew is that Ezra Konegdo. Men, if you're looking for a way to kind of sweet talk your wife, just kind of drop a little Ezra Konegdo on her. Why? Just, I mean, you're my Ezra Konegdo. That, that, that term helper suitable doesn't mean like an assistant. It's not like a, it, it means that one who completes, that there is this, complementary nature between husband and wife. It's not competitive, but it's complementary. And so in God's creative genius, there is the first marriage. It's fascinating to me that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Did you know that? In Genesis, we've already seen God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, and they came together as one flesh. That means that they were united one body, one mind, one heart, one soul prior to sin entering the picture. But if you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, in Revelation, the last gathering is called the wedding feast. And at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the bridegroom, Jesus, is completely united with his bride, the church, the body of Christ. And so from beginning to end, you have this picture of marriage that transcends just companionship, that, that goes beyond procreation, that, that, that is actually pointing toward eternal realities that have temporal, right here, right now, priorities. And, and that's, what, that's what God is up to in the truly wed game. Now, I know some of you are going, well, that's, that's a little different than what I'm hearing right now. And I know, believe me, I know that we live in a world that views truly wed biblically as kind of hopelessly archaic. It's, it's outdated. A lot of our neighbors 
maybe even our friends, coworkers, perhaps even some of our family members think that this view of marriage is somehow obsolete. And I do, I do understand that, but just real quickly, I want to share with you kind of some, some quotes that I think illustrate this point. The University of Virginia is conducting a longitudinal study. That means across years of marriage. They call it the National Marriage Project. One of their findings so far has been this. Less than a third of high school senior girls and only slightly more than a third of the boys seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternatives. So, so about 33% of our high school graduates, a third, believe that marriage is a good idea. Now, I don't blame the kids. I think that's an indictment of us, our generation. We haven't done a very good job of convincing our kids that marriage is not only attainable, but it's actually something to be desired. It can actually help their lives. Less than a third. Is that tragic? We're not done yet. The New York Times posted this column. It said, in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting. The title of the column was, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. <laughs> oh, bless their hearts. Are you kidding me? Let me, let me, just, let me just, for the sake of, let's say, a... Uh, a Solomon-type experiment. You go home this afternoon, and you work on that me marriage. <laughs> Try that for about 30 minutes and see how happy it gets. The happy marriage is the me marriage. But that probably best characterizes our current cultural perspective on marriage. That it's, it's going to complete me. That I'm, I'm looking for someone who is who is so perfect for me. I'm looking for a soulmate. Soulmate. And they are so right for me that everything will get better because I get married. <laughs> that is so... Julie, is that funny? Okay, good. I thought I was about to be hung out to dry there for just a second. Here's the great irony of this cultural perspective. It, it creates this marital idealism that ultimately leads to marital pessimism. We, we think there's the perfect one out there, and if I could just find the perfect one, then everything will be great. But in our heart of hearts, in our mind of minds, we know there's no perfect one out there. Even more to the point, we know that we are not the perfect one. I know. I Listen, nobody is more acquainted with my foibles and frailties than my wife. She knows them inside and out. And she's learned how to manage them and hopefully correct them a little bit, but she knows them. And so this idealism kind of creates the pessimism that you see in high school seniors. And it creates this doubt about whether or not marriage is even possible or 
Is it even worth it? Is it even worth the hassle? God says it is absolutely worth it. Not only is it absolutely worth it, but in Christ it is absolutely possible. Ephesians chapter 5. In reverence of Christ, out of reverence, out of, out of worshiping God, he is God and I am not, submit to one another. Submit to one another. Whew. That's a strong word. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But I think it's important that we understand God's goal. If we're going to play the truly wed game, whether we're married or not, we're going we're gonna to lift up marriage as, as something that God calls some people to, some people he calls not to be married. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is radical in its perspective on marriage and singlehood. The New Testament, alone amongst every world religion, so values and esteems unmarried people, singles. They... God goes to the trouble to say that you have a special role to play in the kingdom of God, in the purposes of God, in the church, because you have the opportunity, you have the ability to not be distracted by a spouse. <laughs> How many of you know a spouse can be distracting? Can I just see a show of hands? Some of you men are cowards. You need to raise your hands. Like, I don't know what he's talking about, honey. You're never a distraction. You're a plus to me. I didn't say a subtraction, I said a distraction. Listen, this thing takes work. This thing takes effort. This thing takes energy. It takes prayer. It takes time. Julie, strangely enough, prefers that I pay attention to her. Does anybody else in the house, do, do you talk to your spouse at the other end of the house? How many of you like have conversations and the spouse isn't even in the room? Can I see you showing? Well, <clears throat> As I'm getting up there in years, my ears are going. They're, they're going. I've spent a lot of time around shotguns in my life. And so I, I don't hear. I, when we turn on our gas logs, sometimes it'll start a little whistling sound that causes the dogs to run under the table. I can't hear it. It's great. It doesn't bother me. But it also means that sometimes I can't hear Julie. And, and sometimes Julie is talking to me two or three rooms away through closed doors. And finally, she'll come and she'll, she'll knock on the door. Mac, Mac. I'm like, yes, dear. She's like, I've, I've been calling you. I'm like, honey, if I had known, I would have come running. <laughs> she says, I need you to listen. I said, honey, I am always listening. I just can't always hear. This perhaps is genetic as well. My grandfather was a lifelong hunter. And I'll never forget one time when I was about 10 years old, we were in Beaumont visiting my grandparents for Thanksgiving. The Cowboys were playing the Redskins. And my grandmother was holding forth in the living room, kind of telling a story. She was a big personality, little girl, big personality. And, and she, she was telling this story. My grandfather was sitting in the same room, smoking his pipe, watching the football game. My grandmother reached the end of her story. She said, we were over at Quentin Polly's the other night, and they said this incredible myth. Mac, Mac, my grandfather was Mac as well. She said, Mac, Mac, Mac. You remember? Mac, Mac. <laughs> I won't tell you how my grandmother responded. It was not safe for church. And 
literally, literally less than a minute later, my grandfather took the pipe from his lips and went, Bobby, you hear them geese? <laughs> I couldn't make this up. We walked outside 250 feet in the air, a flock of geese flying south. But he didn't hear his wife across the room. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what is happening here. But the truly wed game, the truly wed game is after something much, much deeper, much more profound than what the world is after. Because, because God, God has something for those that he calls to be married. And, and if you're married, by the way, and a follower of Christ, you're called. You, you don't have to wonder about, like, I don't know. I never signed anything. You're called. But this is what God is up to. Look at what he says in Malachi chapter 2. It says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? What does God want? He wants godly children from your union. Now, time out real quick. That doesn't mean that everybody who gets married is supposed to have kids. But if you have kids, he wants godly children from your union, from husband and wife being united. That's the goal. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, I hate divorce is a strong statement. It is a really, really strong statement. But understand the heart and the mind of God. Whatever you believe about God, start with the fact that he is love. Begin with the fact, the reality that he loves you. And because he loves you, if you're called into marriage, then this is the goal of marriage is this union, heart and soul, body and mind, in every way, a husband and wife becoming one. That, that's, what, that's what God is after. So if there is divorce, then there is that tearing of flesh. There's that pulling apart. And God knows the pain associated with that. He knows how badly it hurts. So when he says he hates divorce, he hates divorce because he loves us. He hates divorce because he loves us. Now, he hates it. God even allows for divorce. He says that there are extenuating circumstances. If you're abandoned, then you're not held to the commitment or the vow that you made. If there's adultery that your spouse commits against you, then your spouse has shattered the marriage bonds. You're not bound to that. You can work through it. It happens. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is healing. But you're not obligated to it. So abandonment, adultery, if if you're a Christ follower and your unbelieving spouse leaves you, then God says you're not bound by that. Your spouse has broken the marriage covenant. But understand that hating divorce is kind of the first step of having a great marriage, of saying that no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. So we, we got to figure this out. 
We will figure this out. And not figure it out just to stay together. Not just so we can keep the same address and we don't have to submit a new address to the mail office. But so that this becomes everything God wants it to be. You see, these verses that, that we've just covered so far, just at the very beginning, this is the object of the truly wed game. The object of the truly wed game is this. This is worth writing down. It is to create and demonstrate unity through two individuals. It's to create and demonstrate unity through two individuals. Unity is what God is going for. Unity of mind, of heart, of motive, which, by the way, it really, really matters who you date. How many of you are not married? Let me see a show of hands if you're not married in the room. I don't care, youngest to oldest. Okay, keep your hands up for just a hot second, okay? Just keep your hands up. I cannot overstate the importance of who you date because the vast majority of people, statistically speaking, the vast majority of people marry someone they've dated. <laughs> That's just kind of how things roll. And I don't know what it is. So just, just trust me when I tell you. And if you understand that the dating ultimately leads to marriage, then that starts to help you kind of winnow out the field. It, it kind of becomes a process of elimination at that point. You, you can check a lot of people off the list <laughs> when you understand the object of the truly wed game. Now, very quickly, I want to I just introduce the rules of the game. And we've already kind of hinted at some of them, but I want to I go back and, and state them explicitly. The first rule of the truly wed game is worship. Worship. It says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it begins with reverence for Christ. This is why God, in his amazing grace, says do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, if you are yoked together, then you have a unique opportunity and a unique job to show your spouse, who's not yet a follower of Christ, the love of God. But if you're not yet dating somebody, understand what you worship, who you worship, is the absolute essence of who you are. And most marriages are helped by compatibility. Compatibility in senses of humor, compatibility in financial priorities, in raising children, compatibility. And if you're not worshiping, if you're not orienting your lives around the same thing at the core of who you are, then you are setting yourself up for a massive, massive collision of priority at some point. So it starts with worship out of reverence for Christ. Number two, submit. And I would love to tell you that in the original Greek, it doesn't really mean to submit. It means to just love the person. No, submit. Submit. Everybody, say, say submit. submit. Look at that. As far as I can tell, everybody lived saying the word. But I have to start with worship if I'm going to submit to Julie. Submission is not my natural first step. It requires the working of the Holy Spirit in my life and in my heart. 
But when I submit to Julie and Julie submits to me, everything works better. It's not a 50-50 partnership. If you are running a 50-50 partnership in your marriage, you are headed for a disaster. Marriage is a 100%, 100% commitment, submission to the other person. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Number three, unite. Unite. You do whatever it takes to become one flesh, one mind, one heart, one soul. Unite. And the two are united into one. Number four, enjoy. Enjoy. Did you know the Bible commands us to enjoy marriage? Isn't that great? Turn to your neighbor and say, you better enjoy marriage. Some of you have to state that on faith. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. Remember, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. This is wisdom right here. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. Is this in the Bible? <laughs> May you always be captivated by her love. That's a great command. A lot of people get hung up. I don't like the commands of the Bible. Enjoy that one. <laughs> That's Old Testament. Enjoy. You know what Julie and I have recently done? Don't worry, this is not going to go into areas it shouldn't. I know some of you are nervous. <laughs> I have to tell you, I actually did that just for Julie, but the rest of y'all got it as well. We have reinstituted date night. It was so funny. When our kids left home, for some reason, we, we just, like, dating became less and less of a thing. I guess when they were home, we wanted to leave the house more often, but... but like, we've just kind of gone back, like, no, Wednesday is date night. It's date night. Julie's finished a fearless mom for the week. Sunday's still got a few days to go. So Wednesday night, we just, we just set that aside. We, we go out to eat. We're on this stupid Whole30 eating plan right now. So like, we'll, we'll go to True Foods and, and get a plate full of vegetables. <laughs> Nothing more romantic than a plate full of cauliflower. But we're, we're, we're enjoying marriage. And I'll tell you this. After 28 years with kids out of the house, the empty nest is a great goal. If you have young kids at home, hang in there. It's worth the fight. Enjoy. Number five, challenge. Challenge. Some of you are a little too excited about this one. I want you to look at Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, now we're familiar with that one, you know, iron sharpens iron. I'm, I'm going to hold them accountable. So a friend sharpens a friend. Ooh, that, now that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit. If, if I hypothetically were to ever see something in Julie's life that needed changing, then I go to her as a friend. Hey, friend love to visit with you about something. Friend. 
I want to remind you we're on the same team here. So I'm just saying this as a, as a friend. But you got to mean it. But, but challenging each other is part of marriage. The first line of defense for your marriage is your spouse, that accountability. Julie and I have been practicing radical transparency for over 25 years. We just figured it out three years into our marriage. No secrets. No secrets. Passwords, bank accounts, internet browser history, no secrets in marriage. None. Any questions? That's rhetorical. We're moving on. <laughs> Number six, forgive. Forgive. I'll never forget the day that Julie and I got married. We, we had five ministers. There were a lot of pastors in her family, and we had five ministers. It looked like the Supreme Court was marrying us. And her uncle, who was my pastor growing up in Houston, her uncle got to a point, and he got choked up. I, I get a little choked up remembering it because it was so powerful. And he said, he said, Mac and Julie, that's how we talked. He said, we believe in you. And then he got choked up. I'd seen him do squillions of weddings. I've never seen him get emotional. And then he said this. He, he said this, this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it so that you know I didn't just make this up. Ephesians 4.32, he said, Mac and Julie, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I would love to tell you that in the ensuing 28 years, I have always been kind. I've blown it. And I thank God that I married a woman who believes in the power of grace, who believes that because she was forgiven, she has the power, the strength, and the beauty to forgive me. To be kind and tenderhearted toward me when I need her to be. To forgive means that you believe people can change. More to the point, when you're married, to forgive means that you believe he can change. She can change. Not because you're going to change him, but because of the power of God. As we continue this teaching series, we have to understand that we're going to swim around in some shark-infested waters. All of us, all of us are going to find 
areas and, and we're going we're gonna to confront places where we've messed up, where we've fallen short. I haven't been kind or I didn't submit. And, and rather than rationalize those moments, rather than try to justify them or, well, she didn't do, he didn't. Let, let me encourage you with this. When, when we find those moments where we know we have fallen short, I want to encourage you to lean into it. I, I want to encourage you to lean into the timeless, immutable Word of God. Because it's in the Word of God that we find His amazing grace and His truth. The grace to forgive us, but the truth that we need forgiveness. And so when you realize you've made a choice, or maybe there was a season of choices in your life back down the road. Don't, don't run from that, but rather lean into it. Lean into it and, and choose to embrace the truth and the grace of God. And understand that we've all got a role to play in, in this marital narrative. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. You see, the end game of marriage, it's not about us. We, we just get to carry the water. We just get to experience the grace, the truth, the love, the companionship, the, the togetherness, the intimacy, the, the unity because remember what we read at the very beginning, the scripture says a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. The end game, the goal, the object of the truly wed game is, is unity. But then look at how God follows that up through the pen of Paul. He said, this is a great mystery. Isn't that the truth? This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. The way that Christ is united with us. If you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship, then our prayer is that this whole conversation, this whole talk about marriage will just be a springboard into that for you. If you've never committed, you've never submitted your life to Christ, the only one who will never take advantage of your submission, the only one who will never respond any way but perfectly and unconditionally by loving you. If that's you, then we want to invite you to pray. Just silently right now, if you will, just bow your heads. Everybody in the room, just, just if you're here today and you want to step into that relationship for the first time, then you pray with everything you have right now. Just in your own words, something like this, silently just say to God, I need you. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, and I choose to believe that you died on the cross in my place, 
and that you rose again. And I will follow you from this moment forward in relationship with you. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. Very quickly, as our heads are bowed for another moment, if you just prayed that prayer, it's too important to leave it in that chair. It's imperative <clears throat> that you take some steps to begin this new relationship. It's imperative that you allow us to help with what's next because this is just a beginning. So I wanna ask you to do two things. Number one, if you would just fill out the Connect card that's in the program. You got it when you came in? Front of it looks like this. Inside, it says Connect card. Just fill out the information at the top. You'll notice there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you finish that, just tear it off at the preparation and give it to one of our ushers on your way out. And that will just initiate a conversation that flows at whatever pace works for you. Second, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, and this is the beginning for you, I wanna ask you just to quietly raise your hand just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. Your hand is just a physical statement of that spiritual commitment you just made. And as a church, as a family with you, we honor that and celebrate that. You can put your hands down as we're gonna put our hands together to tell you welcome home.